Welcome to the Disruptor Series podcast, where we listen to and learn from the people who are disrupting business, culture, and life. Here's your host, Rob Schwartz, CEO of TBWA Shiat Day New York. Wow. Well, excellent. Excellent. Thank you, everyone, for uh, for tuning in. This is going to be a very special, amazing show because we have Miss Ebony K. Williams. Thank you for that, Kay. I appreciate it. Ebony K. Williams. (laughs) If you don't know, she's an attorney, author, and a permanent co-host of Fox News Channel's The Fox News Specialists. Mm Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, and the author of a of an amazing new book called Pretty Powerful. Yeah, this is my uh, this is my baby. You have two children. This is mine. No, she's uh, she's exciting. Um, I have been working on this in one way, shape, or form for about three years, actually. From and it, it's evolved. It was originally supposed to be called Madam President, and it was going to be talking about Hillary Clinton and and other women that have run for the White House. And then I just ended up wanting to tell a more personal story, something that I could speak to more directly. Uh, and at the same time, I thought was still very much relevant to the notion of a power ascent. I think that's mm. why I wanted to write that first book. I'm very interested and committed to the notion of the female power ascent. And this is my take on on what that could look like. Excellent. Well, we're, we're going to get to that book in one second because you mm-hmm. did mention a president and I think – you know, uh, you're having a moment. <laughs> so why don't you tell whoever well, whoever's been hiding under a rock doesn't know what's been going on. Yeah. I mean, what happened over the last couple of days? So interestingly enough, I've actually been at Fox News for over two years in an official capacity. I've been on several programs. My main thing used to be a weekly segment on the O'Reilly Factor. I used to guest host on Outnumber, guest host on The Five. And I say all that to say, for the better part, ever since this election started, I've given, I think, pointed, sharp, uh, sometimes critical, sometimes complimentary, even-handed, but honest analysis of how I see it. I'm a proud registered independent, so I kind of call things the way I see them. And I have a strong point of view, always have, always will. For some reason, Rob, this docket that I wrote on Monday, uh, the docket is a segment. Uh, it, is, it actually existed before Monday. Uh, it's a, something I, I normally do it once a week where I put on my legal cap. I practiced criminal defense law for many years before going into broadcasting. And I put on my legal hat and I, I do I named it called the docket and I approach a legal issue. Uh, anything from sanctuary cities, uh, DOJ, Russia investigations, whatever. So obviously, in, and let me tell this backstory because it's fun. My producer calls me at like 7.30 in the morning, Monday morning, in the wake of the horrific things that happened in Charlottesville, Virginia, the weekend. So I'm not a morning person. So he calls at 7.30. I'm like, kind of glad you're like, yo, what's up? He's like, EKW, do you want to do a docket today? I say, Monaco, uh, nothing feels too legal to me today. We'll, we'll look for something later in the week. And I kind of get 20 more minutes of sleep. And then it dawns on me when I wake up and get my Folgers coffee. No, Ebony, you need to do a docket today. You need to find a legal mm. element to this uh, tragic and critically important American moment because everything you've ever done in your broadcasting career has been to earn the right to speak to this audience uninterrupted, straight to camera for three minutes. Uh, and now you need to figure out what, what the hell you're going to say mm. that's going to make a difference uh, for Americans, for my community as a black woman, for the White House and the administration, because he watches Fox News. We know that President Trump uh, makes no secret about that being his network of choice. So that felt like a huge opportunity for me, Rob. Yeah. So that's how the docket came about. So then I start writing it. So I write it myself. I always do. 
normally I write it between the three and three thirty hour. I can knock it out normally in thirty and minutes. And by the way, are you right on your on your uh, phone? Yeah, I'm on my phone. Yeah, I'm writing You're my phone. Writer, okay. Yeah, I'm a phone person. I know I don't even own an iPad. I'm like an iPhone gal. So I'm, I normally do it in about thirty forty minutes. Hmm. That day felt like huge stakes. So I started writing that docket at like nine thirty in the morning. Hmm. And when I called my producer, said I'm just joking. Uh, I do need this docket. He said, Well, let me run it up the flagpole. I said, Monaco. I need a docket today, bro. You hear me? He was like, I hear you. And just in terms of yeah, process sure. on docket, who's got to approve? Just normally it's a senior producer issue. And, and I'm proud to say I've never been told what I could say or what I couldn't. It's not that kind of show. I think that perception's out there, yeah. uh, That it, especially working for Fox News, particularly right. as a, a black woman working for Fox News or an independent left-leaning voice. Oh, yeah. You're somehow scripted or they tell you what to say. They give you talking points. I despise talking points from any political side of the aisle. Anyone that's been with me, what have we been 30 minutes together? You can probably tell I'm not a, a puppet type. Yeah. You know, I got a strong, strong mouth, uh, not afraid to use it. And that's what I love about my job, yeah. uh, both right radio and television. So, no, there's no editorial approval. It's just simply, do we have room for it in the show? Okay. Yeah. Because, I mean, this is such an incendiary moment. I think sure. maybe, I don't know. Well, again, I think you, there, you was, gotta... there was a moment of, well, we've already done the show now, and I'm like, no, I need you guys to revisit the rundown. And mm. I know what I'm asking in this moment. This was me cashing in kind of political, um, professional capital with my producers because I've, you know, yeah, you've earned, earned the right. it. Yeah. Thank you. And I, I felt that and I asserted that that in that moment and they respected it to their credit and the docket came about. So we, we went back and forth. We edited it down. It was four minutes originally. We got it down to three. And not they actually said, we think that every word is important. So edit carefully because yeah. we still wanted to have that bite. Oh, yeah. And, and we did. What's funny, Rob, if you watch the full segment where we then pivot to conversation after I read to camera, there wasn't a tremendous amount of controversy on set. Right, Even right. like Rob O'Neill, the guy, you know, the kills right. her. Everybody's like, maybe a little nuanced, but generally speaking, yeah, you're right. And, and yeah, you know, there could have been a lot better response from our commander-in-chief around this moment of moral leadership opportunity. Right. And it was... But then it was like the second I got off set, just hashtag this... Oh, my boom. gosh. Hashtag boom. Again, I understand the audience that I'm speaking to. I actually have great respect for the Fox News audience who, for on and off four years, have welcomed me into their homes, uh, a dissenting voice typically, yeah. uh, somebody that's not looking or sounding like probably what they're used to, and that's why I intentionally pursued a job at Fox News. Uh, well, look at it comes out. I think okay. that, that's very interesting because I think sure. that's sure. that's the big disruption. But I think yeah. in, in this specific docket, I watched it a mm-hmm. few times, and I just – it felt like every word was somehow it fell from the sky. It felt mm. so natural. It didn't oh, feel labored. I mean, it just felt like, wow, that is a position of truth. Because, mm. again, in this situation, like, haven't we all agreed that we all hate the Nazis? Like, didn't, didn't we all agree on that this? That didn't feel controversial. <laughs> yeah. Right, 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 right. Like, really? Like, yeah. we're, we're open in this, you know. Yeah. So that's why, for me, Rob, I, I had to think critically around I, I didn't want to just say what else was out there in the narrative mm-hmm. that you know this is what we expect of president trump or this is is it i really wanted to think i said ebony in this moment where this should to me be an easy layup yep. for anybody no matter your yeah. your political part this is not about party this is not about politics this is a cultural moment right. and i clearly identified it as that immediately yeah so then i have to say 
where's the calculus? Where is the political calculus? And what could possibly be going through the mind of President Trump where he's saying that there's an equivalency, a moral equivalency around flatly, plainly, and unequivocally denouncing David Duke, the Klan, and Nazism? And and that was the legal um, and political conclusion that I came yeah. to. Well, yeah, I think people go go to YouTube because I think it's it's yeah, it's a it's a it's a really it's a, it's a great moment. I mean, just uh, for America to hear that. Mm-hmm. So then, what happened? So <laughs> then I then I, I make the plea because again, it's not I'm not one to just put out my feelings without a solution. Mm-hmm. Every docket comes with a solution. Every bit of my commentary, Rob. It really has a solution-focused element. So at the end of the docket, what I do is I I call upon the president to say, you know what, this is my, you know, uh, uh, idea as to why you're approaching it this way. And this is why I think you're uniquely positioned to handle it differently and better. You know, they really will follow you to the end of the earth, his base will. And and that's a really politically powerful position to be in. So what if you take that and you quell those fears, those fears that take us? I just personally don't believe, Rob, that people hate in this country for the sake of it. I think a lot of the hate that we we experience and that we feel at the hands of one another through a racial lens in particular, or even a gender lens or sexuality, it's, uh, it's around an irrational fear that you existing is a threat to my way of life. Right. That, that your kids getting into, you know, an Ivy League school means my kid can't get in. Right. That you getting the job uh, means I can't go to work and I can't eat. And that feels like a threat to me. And I get that. That's no, I think people can get that. Yeah. And I think if the president, I called upon him to speak to that, quell that, dismiss that as a misguided, inaccurate depiction of our distinctions and our differences he could lead them to seeing it through a clearer lens. Oh, could have, was, it could have been the moment could have been of his the presidency. Moment. Correct, correct. And I'm still calling. I renew my, my plea, Mr. President. If you're watching this podcast, <laughs> listening to us, I, I call on you to, to, to clarify that. He's a big I'm fan. Sure, but... Probably after Fox and Friends, I bet he listens to Disruptor Series He's a big Series Disruptor podcast. Series guy I'm because sure. he was you know, the Disruptor <laughs> president. Sure. So, all right. So then just to finish this story, I mean, it's not over. It's an ongoing narrative. But yeah. then what happened? So then, then, of course, the social media backlash, right? It's swift. And that's not unexpected. I want right. to be clear. Oftentimes, today's show, for instance, on The Specialist, second to last segment was around the Cleveland uh, uh, Browns players that took the knee in yeah, prayer. Yeah. And so I take a position that says you get to protest any way you want as long as it's peaceful. Right. I couldn't get offset without like 40 emails already. And that that's normal. Yeah. But when I see 200 emails, right. you know, 150, and they're almost all so vile, so nasty, a, a handful of them, including the threats. Um, and I, I'm not a dramatic type, actually, but but they really were threatening my life. I shouldn't be able to walk the streets of Harlem. I shouldn't be uh, out and about. I need to watch my back. I should meet my maker. That felt different than the normal just kind of, Ebony, I don't like what you said. Right. That I deal with all the time, that I invite, really. Yeah. You know, I think agreement is quite overrated. Uh, So I'm all about that type of discourse. Mm. And I've often sent emails back and forth that end up in respectful conversation and dialogue. Mm. But what I experienced last Monday after that docket was unlike anything I'd seen. So I still was like of the the spirit of, well, you know, that that's unfortunate that that people took it there, took it to me articulating that every Trump supporter is some deep-seated racist, which the irony there, my black Southern lifetime Democrat mom, Gloria, Huge Trump supporter. Mm. Huge Trump supporter. She has her reasons. Not my guy. But she she feels strongly as a small business owner that he would be the economic solution in the White House. That's her right mm-hmm. as an American. 
Okay, so I know for fact all Trump supporters are not racist. That was nowhere in my articulation in the docket. And it was unfortunate and sad that people took it there. My book publisher, though, because they are obviously gearing up, you know, it's like two agendas. I'm focused on going. I'm proud of this book. I'm excited to talk about this book. We'll get to this book. But every day that I show up to my radio audience and my TV viewers, my obligation is to them and the content of the show. So I was worried about that. He's, meanwhile, understandably, this is America, capitalism, worried about this book. And he's like, listen, Ebony, we posted the book. The threats I've seen, and I've dealt with big personalities and and actually much bigger celebrities, and I've seen nasty threats. I've not seen threats like this. Mm. I'm concerned. He's a grown family man. He said, I think you need to go to Fox News, and you need to show him, and you need to give some security just because I'm, I'm concerned. So off the strength of his urging, actually, is when I went to the executives, and they were very responsive. Hmm. Well, they don't know you because you're tougher than a $2 steak. So, I'm, uh, uh, I'm pretty, uh, pretty <laughs> tough cookie, as, as said in the book. Yeah. Well, yeah. All right. Well, that is uh, – it was a great piece, and I think, uh, you know, listen, we'll, we'll see what happens. But uh, I, I'm still hopeful, believe it or not. Even despite the negativity, the threats, the nastiness, I am actually still hopeful that there is a segment of our country that heard that, that cringed, that didn't mm. want to hear it, but will reflect upon it will consider some of at least what I was articulating and maybe we will have some some evolution and some dialogue. Let's hope so. I mean let's talk a little bit about your kind of, you know, big disruption. You hit it you hit upon it. I mean here you are, uh, an African American woman, you know, you call at, me black. That's at, fine. At, at the uh, you you know, you're a black woman here at the uh, you know, at the at the white guy Republican network. Yes. I mean that is a disruption. Yeah, yeah, and that, that, was, all that was by design. Yeah. So when, I, like I said, trial lawyer for many years, decided I wanted a broader platform. I love trial work, but it's slow. Mm. You know, one case at a time, one verdict at a time. So I said, well, I can make an argument to a sitting judge on a bench around, say, for instance, while deferred prosecution for a first-time offender is the right thing to do because it keeps that individual, normally a young person, mm-hmm. out of the prison pipeline, gives them another opportunity to get it together and potentially be a productive, fruitful member of society. I could make that argument in front of a judge. I've made it many times, many times successfully. Or I can make that same argument to Bill O'Reilly. I can make that argument mm. to Anderson Cooper. I can make that argument uh, in a way that millions, literally two to four to five million people yeah. get that. And so that felt powerful. So that was the intentionality. And five times a week. And five times a week. And so that was the intent. And building a relationship with right, that many people right. where I'm earning their trust and their credibility over time. So that was the intentionality between shifting from law to media in general. Mm. So then the question is, why Fox News? Well, I, I think that voices are important everywhere, Rob. And there are great colleagues of mine that are doing work at CNN, at MSNBC. i Worked at other networks. I've mm-hmm. worked at HLN as a legal analyst. I worked at the NFL Network mm. as a legal analyst covering the Aaron Hernandez trial. I worked at CBS News briefly as a correspondent, and I learned and gathered something from all of it. But Fox, but those are kind of intuitive. I could say, yeah, yeah I could see that. That makes sense. But this is this is defying convention. This and it felt important when yeah. I looked at the lands, the media landscape, and and I'm not. I don't think there can ever be enough powerful voices of various experiences and perspectives but I felt more comfortable than in those other networks and those other spaces right. somebody was doing that work frankly right uh, whether that's Charles Blow whether that's you know Mark Lamont Hill whether that's Bakari Sellers Angela Rye April Ryan Joy Reid Melissa Harris Perry th- those spaces felt a little bit taken care of right a little bit right when I looked at Fox News with the exceptions of Juan Williams Harris Faulkner at the time Charles Payne I mean, just very few others. I'm sure I'm leaving off a couple. 
But the point is it's small, yep. very small. And I certainly didn't see any young women that looked like me articulating a point of view that I had and nobody really with the legal expertise that I was able to bring to mm. the network. So that felt intentional. I wanted to present a, a different point of view, a different representation of blackness, of, of millennial womanhood to an audience that otherwise wouldn't really see a lot of that and, and was wouldn't that, hear it. And was that something that when you went to Fox, they were like, yeah, that sounds good. Or they were like, are you crazy? There's well, no way. I didn't articulate it to them. <laughs> it was a little more it's a little more subtle. Uh, they actually found me originally. Mm. Uh, I was doing my talk radio show out in L.A., in KFI, AM yep. 640. And uh, one of O'Reilly's producers heard my segment breaking down the Trayvon Martin killing, the mm. George Zimmerman acquittal. Said, would you come on? It's a little known secret. I'd never seen the O'Reilly Factor before they called me. I obviously knew who Bill was, hadn't seen the show. So I said, sure, didn't have time to kind of get intimidated around it or, or build it up to be this big thing. I just showed up at the bureau and did my thing. Right. Uh, and from there, it took on a life of its own. And and the initial response from the audience was, who is, you know, what? What, what is this? Like, oh, my <laughs> God, you know, it was a bit much at first, a little nasty. And then very quickly, though. Probably two, three weeks into doing appearances, Lou Dobbs, O'Reilly, mm. Stuart Varney, Sean Hannity, you become familiar to the audience in a way that although your point of view is still very contrary to a lot of what they expect and want to hear, they get to know you as a person. Mm. They get to know you as a human and your personal narrative and, and your backstory and how you grew up and your mom and where you went to school and all this stuff. So I became not just this libtard or not just this <laughs> race baiter. I became Ebony K. Williams person that we know, person that we trust, person that even yeah. if I disagree with, I know she's bringing the facts. I know she prepared for the segment because that's what I do. And and that became important. Hmm. So let's move to the book because I think uh, this looks like a great, great book, pretty powerful, Appearance, Substance, and Success. Uh, I mean, the first thing that struck me was uh, the order of appearance, substance, and success hmm. in your subhead. Okay, sure. Uh, so I don't think that was random, was it? No. <laughs> your quick study, Rob. No. So I think what what captures the reason for the order is the quote in the Post piece today, which essentially I'm paraphrasing, but it's my quote so I can do that. <laughs> um, you walk in a room, grab their attention immediately with the appearance, with the choices that you've made around how you're presenting. And that's everything. Again, this is not a book about beauty queens and, and being some pretty aesthetic, symmetrically even face. And forget that. It's controlling a narrative around who you are, what you value, what you represent, what's important to you based off of how you choose to physically present. That's what I mean by appearance. Mm -hmm. So when you walk in the room, that's what the first thing they see. I tell kids I mentor before you open your mouth in any interview space you go into, you've already started the interview. Right. What, I mean, that's just the fact. Taboo, man, woman, even. That's the fact. So that's why the appearance part is first. Then the substance. If you grab their attention, you're compelling in your presentation. Now I want to hear what you have to say. Mm -hmm. Now I, I'm going to lean in a little closer and actually tune in, get the, the wax out of my ears, and hear what you're articulating to me, hear your messaging. And then success, of course, because if you take care of this and you take care of that, this becomes inevitable. Right. The success part takes care of itself, more or less. Yeah. And I think what's interesting, we're seeing uh, kind of a movement, in some ways, uh, about beauty. Because sure. I'm seeing it on social media. I'm seeing it the way... Uh, my kids behave on social media. Uh, as we talk to people on this uh, Disruptor Series podcast, we're hearing more and more about the power of pretty, the yeah. power of 
how you look. I mean, maybe unpack that a little bit. Sure. I think cause there's some people who are like, oh, no, 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 it doesn't matter. It's, what, sure. it's who you are. But. Sure, sure. So one of the interviews in the book is with Marsha Clark, mm. the prosecutor of the O.J. trial. O.J. Simpson. Obviously. I mean, huge, huge, powerful woman. Right. Powerful person. Powerful woman. Marsha Clark, to this day, and she, she doubles down on it in the book several times, is in that camp. It should not matter. Right. It need not matter. It's it's oppressive, not just to us as women, but to us as humans. We're better than that. We need to call upon our better selves. She's absolutely right. Mm-hmm. We, we should call upon our better selves. We should push past this, this knee jerk to be concerned with this, and we should be better. This book is written for in the meantime. In the meantime. <laughs> no, really, literally. I'm, I make no bones about it. I think there are great women doing that work and men fighting that fight to, to get us to a day it won't matter at all. Right. In the meantime, though, I'm making a, a very pointed argument that says for all the, the crap, I don't know if you can curse on this podcast, uh, all the oh, crap and. Yeah. and oh, <laughs> well, then, yeah. All, all, all the shit we take as women, frankly. Yeah. Uh, around what we look like, getting picked apart, getting scrutinized, mm. and never more so than now, right? Instagram, Facebook Live that we're doing now. Ch- uh, I'm sure there's going to be many things on the comments section about my dress, my hair, but blah, blah, blah. that that's going to happen. So how about we take some advantage of mm. the fact that people are paying that close a damn attention as to what we look like, and we control the narrative. We don't we don't leave the ability to define who we are based off what we look like just to the men or just to the others outside of us. We get in front of that, and we kind of possess and empower ourselves around controlling that. That's that's really where this book came from. Yeah, you know, it's funny. I was I was for whatever reason I was watching the movie Patton the other night. Okay, and. Uh, Here's a guy who was very concerned with what he looked like. Absolutely. You know, here's the you know one of the toughest generals ever, and he's mm-hmm. very concerned with that. And I I read something else recently just about uh, Native American Indian chiefs. Sure. You know, I, yeah. I, think I was in Paris. Uh, Alexander, you know, the calf thing was yeah. a big thing. Like Napoleon was exactly. into it. I mean, it's not new. Right. You know, it's really not. I think it's taboo. I think it, people cringe when they hear anybody articulate it. I mean, the the kind of book title is a bit provocative uh and i got pushback on the publisher of course originally because pretty powerful that's gonna be your first book ebony you already kind of look like uh, the walking stereotype of the fox news anchor or the kind of lawyer turned tv personality are you really going to double down on that stereotype and the answer was yes and i think the first first easy the first chapter pretty isn't a dirty word exactly because I'm tired of that. I'm tired. I reject that. I'm not going to let society or some arcane, narrow-minded viewpoint shame me or shame you or shame your daughter or shame anybody in this country around having the right to be concerned and proactive around what we look like, particularly when you're using it to leverage a power ascent. Mm-hmm. I mean, if that's not the most brilliant thing ever, I, I really don't know what is. Well, yeah, I, th- I think it's just, it's disruptive because the convention yeah. is people want pretty as something, oh, maybe that's an afterthought. Yeah. And you're... Let's push it away. Yeah. Let's push it away. You're walking let's push in the room it, Let's push it. it down. Let's make it a non-factor. But that's a lie. Mm. It's a lie, Rob. It is a factor, okay? I just met you an hour ago. First impression is what we see. Mm. You know what I mean? A- and so let's acknowledge that in the meantime, that's what it is. And let's be proactive and intentional around our command of it. Did you think I was pretty? I, I said, you know what? This guy showed up. He put a suit on. He got a tie, a pocket square even. Uh, he's taking this seriously. And I appreciate that. Thank you. You're a good egg. 
yeah, I, I, I love this idea of um, the judo of using looks as a competitive advantage. Yeah, uh, there's something that's very good. smart that's... in that. Perfectly said, because that's exactly what I'm, I'm suggesting. And that, that's what I've done. Mm. Um, and I make no bones about it. That it, I guess I'm so confident, frankly, in my substantive and intellectual ability. And yeah. that's not to say that, I, and I say this in the back of the book, I'm not smarter than anybody. I'm not better than anybody. I'm actually not even prettier than anybody, contrary to the title and the cover. What I am, though, is a very hard worker. I'm someone that understands the assessment of one's strengths and weaknesses. Mm-hmm. I am very much a believer in preparation. I got that from my first law firm job. It says, you know who's going to win the case? Not even the one with the best client or the best facts or even the best argument, the one that's most prepared. Mm-hmm. Those are lessons, Rob, that they're intrinsically in me. So because I have such confidence in my substantive value, I am never afraid to lean in to the appearance portion and take full advantage of the benefits it can and yield. Judge uh, G, uh, Judge Perino, Judge uh, Janine Pirro, excuse me, rather, Fox News, pretty controversial in her own right. But what I love, she was one of the first women judges on the bench in the entire state of New York, hmm. first judge on the bench uh, female in Westchester County. She opens her chapter with talking about how much she despises women that sleep their way to the top. And that's important because I don't want anybody to ever read this book and for a second get get confused about what I'm suggesting. Right. This is not women uh, uh, push up your boobs, uh, lift your, your hemlines and slut your way to the top because that's A, short-sighted, B, depending on where your moral compass is, just not cool. But more importantly, C... It doesn't have a long-term payoff. Right. It might get you in the door. And I frankly know, and I'm sure mm. you do if you've been in any business long enough, some women that have used that and gotten maybe somewhere. It won't keep you, uh, and it certainly won't sustain you. So I advise strongly against that. It's a different level of attention to appearance that I'm artic- articulating here. And then maybe talk a little bit about the construction of the book. It's you with another uh, another woman uh, sure. in each chapter. So. Again, I'm pithy. So I dumped kind of intellectually every thought I had around this. And then it was like maybe at 30, 35,000 words. And obviously that's not a book. That's a beautifully extended essay. So I was talking to my developmental editor, Christina A. Jackson, who happens to also be my best friend, but much more important to this conversation, brilliant wordsmith, Mm. brilliant writer, English major. We met at UNC Chapel Hill quick side story, best story ever. We met because we were both dating the same guy at the same time. Oh, wow. And she was such a bossed up woman even back then that she kind of came up to me in the calf like, hey, you dating this dude? Me too. We should chat. Been best friends for damn near 20 years now. Anyway. Where's the guy? Not where we are. <laughs> I can tell you that much, Rob. Not where me or Christina are. Anyway. Uh, God bless him. So she, we're talking about how we want to evolve the book. And she had the great idea. She said, Ebony, you are a natural born analyst. So why don't you go out there, mm. identify some women that you think are power, pretty powerful models, and interview them. And then you analyze their construction and their story. And that's, that's exactly great. what that's happened. That's genius. Yep. Yeah. She's, I got to credit her with that idea. And then we took it and ran with it. And we really uh, intentionally, Rob, picked women from different segments, different political spectrums, mm. even different backgrounds. You know, you got lawyers, you got judges, you have women in business, entrepreneurs, uh, Megan McCain, uh, uh, Desiree Rogers, which was 
one of my, I mean, I hate to pick favorites, but Desiree, that Desiree Rogers was dope. A, because I did it while I was in Paris and called her long distance. And I'm very cheap by nature, actually. I enjoy <laughs> nice things, but I'm very cheap. So I think I spent about $75 on that phone call. But that's how important it was for me to talk to Desiree Rogers and get her take. She was Obama's social secretary for right. a brief moment. And you talk about a disruptor. I mean, Washington did not know what hit them. And she's very frank around it's not my job to make you comfortable with who I am and how I present. But over time, and I love this, she's vulnerable, and she says, by 50, it's not her job, but she makes the effort. Yeah. She makes the effort to greet other women when she walks in the room because she knows the, the the perception, and she's working on that aspect of the sisterhood and, and the collective. And did you find that even though these were different women, different ages, different uh, you know, uh, vocations, was there something that unified them? Absolutely. Because every woman, the thing they have in common is they're all champions of their industry, Hmm. right? Every last one of them. And the thing that they kind of have similar in all of their narratives is the tenacity. These are values. Hmm. These are values. These are character traits, right? The tenacity, the resilience. Every last one of them had setbacks, lost trials, got fired from jobs, you know, got fired from shows, didn't have contracts renewed, but they kept going. They kept mm-hmm. going. That tenacity and that resilience is is laced throughout every chapter and every woman. And also, it's my story. You see a lot of my mother's story, my mm. grandmother. Those are persistent throughout. Well, I, I want to jump to one of your other theories, um, which relates to the book, which is the theory about dresses and candy. Your okay. Your Skittles dress, your... (laughs) Tell us about candy and dresses. So in all fairness, the Skittles uh, reference was from the writer Kirsten Fleming from the New York Post. Um, But she's right. That's that's the common, uh, you know, the optics look. You look at Fox News and you're going to see tight sheath dresses in a multitude of colors. (laughs) Uh, That's not by an accident. That is the that was the vision of Roger Ailes. Mm. And and I have a chapter, as you know, sexual Mm. harassment, truth and consequences chapter where I take a few pages to just talk exclusively about Mr. Ailes, my impression of him, my two occasions to meet him personally, one on one. And the thing about Roger Ailes, if you take all of the really hard and, and difficult and sad controversy aside, which I do address that, but if you just look at him as an executive, mm. the thing that made him so successful and made him a titan of cable news, in my estimation, was that he understood that cable news, unlike the newspaper, was a visual median. And he didn't apologize for that right. because he came from a TV background. He was a television producer, right. Mike Douglas show. Right. Then he kind of worked in politics and kind of evolved into to running a news network. And he always understood that before anybody cares what the editorial is, or what the copy sounds like, you got to get them to stop the channel. You know, and so and I, I again at NABJ, I was there in New Orleans talking to three, four thousand black journalist students. And I said, look, don't be naive. Uh, around this issue of what it looks like. And don't be so self-righteous around Mm -hmm. wanting to be so much above that that you miss the whole damn point, which is that in every network, CBS, ABC, NBC, CNN, CNBC, almost all of them, every executive has four monitors on their wall in their office. And you know what? They're all on mute. And what they're doing is they're on the phone. They're sending emails. they're, they're, They're running a network. But you better believe that if they happen to look up and see something that catches their eye... That is going to be the, the game-changing moment for you and could be a career trajectory all, all on its own. Mm, amazing. Yeah. 
really smart. Mm-hmm. One question on the, um, uh, you know, you worked at CBS. You're, yes. you're working at uh, WABC. I just had one question for you, which was the day that you walked into Fox, did it, like, did you know, like, oh, my God, this is different? Like, did it feel different? Or was it, hey, this is like another, this is like another <coughs> channel, but they're, like, their brand is this. Well, yes, it felt different. Let me just be direct. Not worse, not better. I, again, maybe because I come from a legal background, a trial lawyer background, I am comfortable in something that feels adversarial. Mm. Okay? So th- I, I'm not someone that is comforted by an echo chamber. I'm not comforted by agreement. Like I said, I think it's really highly overrated. So when I walked into Fox News, it it felt like an opportunity. Mm. That's what it felt like. It felt like an opportunity to possibly, slowly, incrementally. I didn't have any delusions. I was going to put on my, my black woman superhero cape and <laughs> change Fox News channel overnight. But I felt that I could actually have an opportunity to make some inroads Um not just for for my people, but for us as Americans, because I actually, uh, this is as Pollyanna as I'll ever sound. I think we can do better. Right. I truly believe we can do better on the on the race issue in our country. I don't think it's going to be solved or, or fixed overnight. Maybe not even in our lifetimes, but we can do better. And I felt I could be an important part of that progress. I mean, I don't know if it's me wishing this or it's happening, but it feels like this. Uh, the kids of Rupert Lachlan, I think, is and the James. Son, yeah, James. It feels like they're moving the network a little bit. And I don't know if this is, hey, they're going to move it a little bit more center because mm-hmm. Steve Bannon's going to come up with some crazy network. Mm-hmm. But it feels like something's happening there. Is that, am I, well, I imagining think a, this? No, I think there are a few things happening. I, I don't believe that this is some left-wing takeover from Rupert's sons to make Fox News into MSNBC, which that that narrative is out there. Because, by the way, I think that would be the bad business decision. Yes, because the say, audience. They're, they're not dum dums when it right. comes to, to making money. Fox News, right. seriously, Fox <laughs> News is a third of the entire 21st century piggy bank, okay? It literally, sometimes on some years, makes more than their movies do, mm. okay? So they're not fools. At the same time, I think there's a greater consideration, not, not greater than money, of course, but greater than the politics in the sense that there are also these sexual harassment issues right. that have, have really just dragged right. them down from a PR perspective and really from inside the building from a morale. morale. How That's about re- right. And recruiting, too, I'd imagine. All of it. All yeah. of it. So they know that part affects the bottom line. So, and I'm not taking anything away from the altruistic motivations around change because I don't know them personally. But I'm just saying the business model would command that there be some acknowledgement mm-hmm. of Houston, we have a problem. Okay. Bare minimum, <laughs> Houston, we've got a problem. And I say that because they've said that. Yeah. Like, we got a damn cultural problem right. on a couple different levels around the sexual harassment stuff, around the race discrimination class action, and obviously uh, around the, the handling of the editorial coverage. So I think they are trying to address as many of those things as possible in a way that doesn't disrespect their entire audience editorially, mm-hmm. but also maybe makes evolves good, them. It, it maybe evolves them, makes good business sense, and, and just kind of is, is a little bit above some of this. Hmm. Well, before we get to your journey, and you, you've 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 uh, given us some hints to it about your uh, your legal career, I just want to ask. Uh, How's it working with Curtis Lewa? <laughs> this guy, he's one of my childhood heroes. I get that question all You know, a guardian lot. angel. I mean, yeah. this guy's amazing. That's the superhero. Uh, no, Curtis is is a hell of a lot. 
he's a he's a professional. Seriously, he's a very much a consummate professional. Last week, this is this is. If you'd asked me this two weeks ago, I would probably give you a little bit more of a generic answer because the show's a little new. The show's right. only been been on for about three months. Um, but very quickly, I think we're building great chemistry. And what's fun is Curtis is a 63-year-old white man. I'm a 33-year-old black woman from the South. He's obviously from up here. And yet we find so many points of connection mm. around talking about IVF because I didn't know. I bought a story in one day, say, hey, I want to do this story. I don't know if it's too kind of woman's issuey around if a woman uses IVF and uses donor eggs, should she tell the kid that you're the product of a donor egg if it's the father's brother? And Chris was like, oh, all my kids are from donor eggs. And I'm like, what the hell? I can't believe that you like can command authority on this issue better even than me. So that's just a little backstory there. But last week was 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 challenging and rough emotionally for yeah, me as yeah, well. Um and Curtis really stepped up to the plate. Uh, he really acted. Uh, I mean, it was still a Curtis and Ebony show and strong point of view and back and forth. But there were moments because I took callers and because mm. that's the business that we're in. Yeah, yeah. You got to own it and you got to open yourself up to feedback on air, mm. even around what you said to two some million people. Some of the calls were nasty and hostile and that was to be expected. And I went back and forth, and I, I heard some of it and gave pushback when appropriate. But Curtis really acted as an incredible buffer mm. uh, in those moments for me. And, and for that, I'm really, really grateful. I mean, I already knew he was a professional, but he showed me he was a little bit of a gentleman. Yeah, no, Go he's, figure. He's, Who would have thunk it? He's a special guy. <laughs> yeah. So in, on your journey, what I was thinking, too, is, is we were chatting here. I mean, what what was 8-year-old Ebony like? I mean, we, I mean, like, were you pretty? Were you... Were you Eight, forceful i mean like eight year where, old ebony or or another way to yeah. look at this is like when did you sort of know who you were well, who are you deepak chopra um <laughs> kidding uh still probably evolving on that issue but at a very young age i think to get to the spirit of your question this level of kind of assertiveness and assuredness and a little bit of intensity has always been there. That's not new. That didn't just happen at like 25. Right. I've always kind of had a strong sense of self. I don't know where that really comes from mm. other than, well, maybe I do. A, um, I've always kind of had a, a very strong spiritual connection. I went through, through some personal family issues at around 23 years old, 20, 20, maybe 25, that pushed my faith and further established that. So for me now, faith is hugely important. But even as a young child, I had this kind of connection that I was being guided mm. by something larger than me. The other thing is I'm an only child. Mm. So I've always kind of had a spirit of independence, a spirit, mm. and, and I was raised by a single mom with no father. So I think I always had a, an attitude or spirit of, I better figure it out. <laughs> I better figure it out. There's no safety net. Mom, and she always raised me like that. Like, listen, I could get hit by a bus tomorrow. Right. There's nobody else. You got to figure it out. So I was doing chores, ironing, washing dishes at six years old. I was a latchkey kid coming home because she drove uh, the school bus, worked a lot of other jobs. In North Carolina? Did you in go Charlotte. Yeah. Mm -hmm, put herself through beauty school. So she was gone like mm. 12 hours a day. So I would come home off the school bus at six, have my key on my back. I lost a lot of keys, got in a lot of trouble around that. <laughs> uh, come in, pop in that, you know, Hot Pocket or Lean Cuisine or whatever and do my chores and do my homework and clean the house. Like... There was a routine, there was an expectation of discipline from a very early mm -hmm. age, and that kind of has, has been consistent in my life. And then what was the moment that you said, well, I think legal, maybe I'll be a lawyer? Early, six years old, there's old wow. videotapes of me on pageant stages saying, I want to be an actress and a lawyer. Uh, the lawyer thing came from other people because, again, I was always a precocious child, always mm. very strong voice 
never really kind of the more high pitched typical female voice. And, mm. and and I know how sexist that kind of sounds, but but that's just the truth. I always kind of had a lower register tone to the way I spoke. I commanded a level of attention at yeah. a young age, and then eventually that evolved into authority. And I was never afraid to go back and forth. So people would say to my mom and me, she'd be a great lawyer. Hmm. That felt important. That felt like a source of pride because I didn't come from a family of formally educated people. Hmm. My mother went to college and dropped out because she wanted to do her own thing as an entrepreneur. And that was it. So I was the first in my family to graduate from college. I was really, really uh, blessed to have a full academic scholarship to UNC at 16. That expectation of academic excellence came directly from her. Hmm. She knew that she didn't finish school, but it was not an option for me. Like there were Yale catalogs coming to the house at like second grade. (laughs) But because she knew as a young black girl from the rural South originally, and then North Carolina was like a big come up for us because I was born down in in Amite, Louisiana, that there would be a lot working against me by way of presumptions, by Hmm. way of stereotypes. Uh, We were also poor. That didn't Hmm. help. So she was like, you know what? You're going to have a credential that's going to be unchallenged, and it's going to make you, uh, your authority on issues unquestionable. And that is what the law has done for me. It's given me a level of credibility yeah. that you just, uh, I wouldn't trade it for the world. And it's, it's, I don't know, you tell me, but it, it seems like it's also helped you be fearless because you know. Oh, totally. Totally. Yeah. You know, totally. it's interesting yeah. that. Uh, a legal background gives you that kind of confidence. Yeah, and it's not to say I, I, that I know it all. No lawyer does. It's called the practice of law for a reason, right? Mm. We're constantly practicing. But what it does is it empowers me around my level of preparation, my level right. of research, my level of figuring it out. Because that's a lot of what you learn in law school. They call it the Socratic method. And it's because there's not necessarily one answer. It's issue spotting. It's mm. uh, it's taking this analysis and taking this analysis and deconstruct. I And I love it, as you can tell. I'm kind of getting a little excited. I loved law school. Mm. I really did because I loved opening my mind up to thinking in that way. And it's served me well. Do you think that uh, law school also may have shown you that no matter what game you're in, it is a game. Oh, hell yeah, it's a game. For those who haven't been to law school, it's one of the few places still where they are shameless about encouraging the level of direct competition with one another. Mm. They put the, the ranking after that first semester on the board with all your names. So it's clear, number one, number two, number Oh, you're number six? Oh, okay, I'm coming for you. Literally, like that. You know, because, you know, after that first year, if you're in that top 10, 15%, you get those interviews with Skadden, with, you know, uh, Sidley Austin. With the, correct, correct. So it, it is a shameless thrusting into that level of direct competition. So the game part you're speaking about, hmm. 100%. I hope we get these kids to Davis and Gilbert, who is the, <laughs> that's the attorneys for Omnicom. Well, then Thank that's you what, very that, much. That's exactly what, what we're going for with those on-campus <laughs> interviews. We would like Davis and Gilbert to become uh, full supporters, uh, sponsors of the show. 100%. We'll make it happen. <laughs> really incredible. So you also mentioned uh, the pageant circuit. So you did some beauty pageants. So what was that like? And where was this? And Yeah, I know. Pageants did you meet Donald Trump in Atlantic City at one point? I didn't make it that far. Uh, sad to say, I actually came up literally just one vote short. Um, I was first runner-up to Miss North Carolina USA in 2009. Had I won, I would have met Donald Trump because he still owned the pageant at that time. I would have gone to Miss USA uh, like the woman that won the title of North Carolina USA, Kristen Dalton, and she won Miss USA. So she was amazing. Good for her. Uh, The pageant thing came about early. I was six years old. I was, my mother, again, a part of her 
equation for my ability to succeed in all spaces, and that was her parenting mantra, mm. was be smart, make basically straight A's, get a law degree, be un- unchallenged in that space. But also, also, let's make sure that, that the aesthetic part is working for you. Let's make sure that you're looking the part at all times. She just understood mm. the value of that, I guess intrinsically, because I don't know who would have taught it to her. So I'm going to, she had me in extracurriculars, ballet, classical piano, all these things. I'm going to ballet class. Someone says, Ebony's a cute girl to my grandmother. You should put her in a pageant. My mom initially, you know, we don't have money for a damn pageant. You know, you enter the pageant's $500. What are you talking about? The lady said, no, you just get sponsors. And if she does well, she will earn college scholarship money. Well, as a single mom who had no savings fund and never did have one, that felt like incentive. So we started. We we had a couple false starts, which we detail in the book. Uh, but eventually, we get it right. And, and more importantly, I get it right as a young adult because I go back. I took a big break from pageants. Because I wasn't performing at a high enough level, and that didn't feel very good. Mm. But then I took it seriously as a law student because I, I was like, hey, I had a full ride to Chapel Hill, didn't have a full ride to Loyola Law. I had a partial. So I needed to come up with some money. So I started doing the Miss America system, the local level, to earn some money. And that's when, on my own volition, you ask when did I become kind of who I am, those are those moments where mm. I said, you know what, it can't just be my mom. It can't just be good teachers. It can't just be college advisors. It, it, it can't be mentor. It's got to be me. Mm. It's got to be me that at some point lights the fire under my own ass to, to reach a level and expect a level of excellence right. every time. And yeah, I, I love this uh, you know, this phrase from your mom, succeed in all spaces. All that's, spaces. That's really cool. All spaces. Well, I mean, we've come to the point in the show where you get to give one piece of advice. And I know you said just one. But. I know. I know. That's because I talk too much. But we, we, um, we, have, we have some young listeners who are, you know, starting out uh, in their careers. Uh, we have people who are midway through their careers and they're like, hmm, am I in the right spot? Uh, we've got clients who listen who are looking for inspiration. I mean. I think it's, I think it's, I think it's perfect. Um, I'm going to basically the, the short answer is bet on yourself. That happens to be the title of the epilogue of Pretty Powerful. Um, it's just a few pages where I talk about how I'm, because that's another common question. Other than how is Curtis Lewa, how is Bill <laughs> O'Reilly, the third most common question I get is, how did you go from law to television and radio? And it's a long, sorted journey, one that I would not necessarily do all over again. Mm. Oh, if I, and I say that in the book, if I knew, Rob, what it all took, all of the dark moments, all of the gritty ugly, unglamorous underside and sacrifices required, even knowing that it ultimately worked out pretty damn well for me, I can't tell you I would do it again. That's the truth. That said, my one piece of advice is bet on yourself. Hmm. Because if you are unwilling to make the investment and the sacrifices into your own journey, how in the hell can you ask anyone else to? Um, and, and, and that's important. So I, I would submit to everybody to look within yourself do an honest assessment of your strengths and weaknesses, figure out how to play to those strengths in a way that honors who you are and your morals and your integrity, and then cash in those chips and bet on yourself. Great. Well, Ebony, all I can say is you are pretty amazing. Thank you. So, uh, That'll be the next thank book. Thank you. All right, good. I'll help you write it. So thanks for being on the show. No, You've been, uh, this, was, this was great, Rob. Thank super, you. Uh, super inspiring. And, and I also want to thank you for making the backdrop match my canary yellow dress. Um, anytime I can color coordinate in that way, that feels uh, like a power play. Well, when you come back for the next book, yeah, okay. we'll keep it up. We'll keep it up. Awesome. Thank you. Thanks. 
You've been listening to the Disruptor Series podcast brought to you by TBWA Shiat Day New York. Craving more disruption? Visit us at tbwashiatny.tumblr.com. 